Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14? One of the great realities of the gospel, one of the great things that Christ has accomplished is that in Christ we are one. We see this theme repeated in Paul's writings in Ephesians 2 where he says that he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Galatians 3 says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. We see this theme in the book we've been studying now for so many weeks as well. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call upon Him, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't this a glorious truth that in Christ we are one? But while the wall of hostility has indeed been broken down decisively, we in the church are quite good at raising it up again, aren't we? I once heard the story of two Christian women, members of the same church, in fact, both invited to a Christmas party, but when one of them found out that the other was going to be there, she decided not to go. She called the host and said, I can't be in the same room with that woman. Why? Because she was a Democrat. I hope that that strikes you as absurd. But may I ask, what reasons do you use to avoid fellowship with other believers, even believers who hold to the same statement of faith that you hold to in the same church? Beginning in Romans 12, Paul has showed us what a life should look like, our lives should look like, in view of the mercies that we have received in Christ Jesus. He has taught us that it is a life of worship. And this life of worship, his main emphasis has been to show us that a life of worship ought to be a life of love toward one another, that we are to have genuine love towards one another who are fellow Christians. We are to live in harmony with them. Last week, Pastor Dan showed us that we actually have an outstanding and ongoing debt of love toward one another. We are living in the new age between the first coming advent of Christ and the second coming, the second advent of Christ, living in the last days before His coming. 
And so Paul teaches us that because of that, we are to cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. And one of the things that is included in putting on the armor of light is to not quarrel with one another. But in our passage this morning, we see that there was quarreling at the church at Rome. People weren't willing to sit down for a meal with one another. They were looking down at one another and judging them. And so Paul comes in and says, you need to welcome one another because of your unity in Christ. He gives a number of good reasons actually why we are to welcome one another grounded mainly in who God is and in what he has done for us in Christ. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's not my custom to give away my points before I start, but I'm going to do so today. I think Paul is making three points in this passage. First, these will come up later, welcome those God has welcomed. This is his overarching command and the reason for his command, and they're found in verses 1 to 3. He then expands upon this 
The second point is don't judge one another because God is the judge. I see this in verse 4, but also repeated in verses 10 to 12. The third point, honor the Lord because we belong to the Lord. This point comes from the very center of Paul's argument in verses 5 to 9. So that's where we're going. Let's begin with verses 1 to 3. Welcome those God has welcomed. Welcome those God has welcomed. To understand this command, we need to seek to understand the situation of the original audience. There are clearly two groups of people in the church at Rome. One group wasn't welcoming the other. They weren't, if I could put it this way, accepting one another into fellowship. That'd be another way to translate welcoming. They weren't accepting one another into fellowship. The setting is most likely around the dining room table. It was table fellowship that was broken in the church. Paul names these two groups of people in verse 2. Those who believed that they could eat anything, that's the first group. And in chapter 15, 1, he calls them the strong. But then the other group were those who were only eating vegetables, and he calls them the weak. So two groups, but there were also other issues than eating. In verse 5, the weak thought that one day was better than the other, whereas the strong saw all days alike. And in our passage for next week in verse 21, it also seems like the strong were drinking wine, but the weak were abstaining from drinking wine. The strong were most likely Gentile Christians in the church, whereas the weak were most likely Jewish Christians within the church, but both Christians. Jesus had clearly taught that in the new covenant, all foods were clean and the strong took this teaching at face value. And so therefore they had no misgivings about eating meat or drinking wine. But the weak, they were still hung up on all of the dietary restrictions in the Mosaic law. And living in a Roman society, They didn't have any confidence that the way that meat and wine were processed was done in a way that upheld kosher standards. And so they simply avoided meat and wine altogether, kind of like Daniel and his companions did when they were in exile in Babylon. Paul sides with the strong as it relates to the issue of the law. He knew that no foods, no drink were inherently unclean in the new covenant. We'll deal with that next week. But the point that I want to make today is even though he sides with the strong on the issue of the law, he didn't think that the weak were heretics. He didn't think that they were legalists, which would make them heretics, like the Judaizers in Galatians. They weren't saying, I want you to be very clear on this, they weren't saying that if you don't follow these rules, 
You can't be a Christian and you're not saved. Yes, they were wrong in their views on this topic. And so he calls them weak. But they were wrong on a non-essential issue. What he calls in verse 1, opinions or disputable matters, as the NIV translates it. It's not as though the non-essentials don't matter for Paul. It's an important point for us to hear. Or that he doesn't think that the weak need to change their views. It's simply that he doesn't think that their views are worth dividing over because they are non-essential. The core issue for Paul was not what was right or wrong on the issue of diet or religious days. The core issue was division in the church over things that shouldn't divide the church. The core issue, in another way to put it, was a heart issue. They had condemning and condescending attitudes towards those who thought differently and lived differently than they did. Look at verse 3. The strong were despising the weak. That is, they were looking down upon them. And the weak were judging the strong. And this was keeping them from welcoming one another. It was keeping them from table fellowship, creating unnecessary division, division over opinions, disputable matters, non-essentials of the faith. For us in the American church today, the presenting issues here are not quite the same for us. We generally don't divide over Jewish food laws or the Jewish calendar, but we do still divide over non-essential issues. We do still have judgmental attitudes toward others in the church that lead to division or that simply lead us to keep from having table fellowship with others who think differently than us. This passage raises a number of questions, doesn't it, in the church of the contemporary relevance for our lives. One of the most important questions to ask is what issues are worth dividing over? And what issues should we remain united on? Many theologians classify these types of theological issues with three levels. First level issues are issues that are most central and I would say essential to Christianity. You simply can't deny these teachings and still be a Christian in any meaningful sense. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity, the atonement in Christ's blood, his resurrection from the dead, his return, that he is coming Again, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are essentials of the faith, essentials that are actually worth dividing on 
in our fellowship together. That's first level issues. Second level issues are reasonable boundaries, or they create reasonable boundaries between Christians in different denominations or in different local churches. They are issues that have to do with the way that we operate as a church, the way that we're organized as a church. Issues like baptism and church government, for example, are reasonable reasons to have different churches. It doesn't mean that we don't like those people over there, those people over there, but it has to do with the way that we operate, and it's reasonable to do something different. For instance, at First Free, you may have noticed we don't baptize infants in this church. We only baptize believers. But unlike a Baptist church, we will welcome into membership those who have been baptized as infants. Also, we uphold a congregational form of church government. That being said, we don't think that you have to hold to these views to be Christian. But it's pretty difficult to have any type of functional or operational unity as a church if we don't have agreement on these issues. You don't need to look down on those who hold to a different opinion on these issues. And at the same time, I don't think that we would be violating Paul's instructions here to hold to second-level views and implement them within our church. But the third-level issues are what are in mind in this particular passage before us. These are disputable matters, matters of conscience, you may say. They are issues on which we really should not divide. Let me use another concrete example. In a church like First Free, there are different views on the Lord's Day, different views on the Sabbath, Can you eat out on Sunday or play sports on Sunday or mow your lawn on a Sunday? Different people in this church will answer that question in a different way. And I want to say that those are important questions. We should be asking those questions. But where we land on them should not separate us. I would put issues like politics into this category as well. As Christians, we should all believe that the government should uphold justice, right? That's pretty clear. But we're going to come down in different places on which policies we believe will best do that. We can debate these issues. We can even seek to persuade others to hold a different view. But we shouldn't divide over them, and we certainly shouldn't look down on others who hold a different view than us. And I think it's fair to say that we should definitely welcome those who differ with us on politics at our dinner table. Usually when Romans 14 is preached, pastors bring up issues like alcohol, tobacco use, whether or not you should watch certain movies or engage in social media, birth control, clothing, whether or not you should observe secular holidays or whether or not you should observe religious holidays in a secular way or worship style or on and on and on. We could talk about all of those. But the point I want to make is all of these things fall into that third level category. 
Some would say that these issues don't matter. That's why we shouldn't fight over them or divide over them. I think that's a wrong way to look at it. They do matter. All of them are important. We should think about and talk about every one of those issues. But because they're third level issues, we shouldn't divide over them and we shouldn't look down on others who hold to different views than us. Paul tells us to welcome one another and his reason is that God has welcomed us. God welcomes people who hold to different views on these third level issues and on second level issues. So we shouldn't divide over them. We should live in unity. His second reason he gives is in verses 4 and 10 to 12. And here's the point. Don't judge one another because God is the judge. Let's look at verse 4 again. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Let me get a qualification out of the way right here at the beginning. Paul is not saying that we should never make judgments about other Christians. It is clear to me in other parts of Scripture that we are to do this. Matthew 18, for example, Jesus calls us. Not just allows us, but calls us to treat unrepentant sinners as though they are a Gentile or a tax collector. That is an unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the church, commands them to hand the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law over to Satan. Both situations required making a judgment. But in both situations, it was very clear that a person was living in unrepentant sin. The situation in Romans 15 is different. While the weak are wrong, they weren't sinning. And the core issue wasn't the presenting issue. At the core, it wasn't about food and drink. It was about attitudes. It was about despising and judging. And Paul says the antidote to this judgmental attitude and judgmental actions is to remember that God is the ultimate judge. The weak Christians at Rome, they didn't owe anything to the strong Christians at Rome. They wouldn't answer to them on the last day. And the strong didn't own the weak. Both groups will one day answer to God at his judgment. And Paul's assumption is that both groups that are being spoken of here will stand in that judgment because the Lord is able to make them stand. Their right standing with God was based not on whether or not they ate or whether or not they drank. Their right standing with God was based on what Christ did for them, and through embracing Christ by faith, they were declared right with God. We are not the ultimate judge. 
Let me just give you a really basic truth this morning. You and me, we are not God. I know we all know that in our head. But every time you adopt a judgmental attitude towards other believers, you are acting like you believe that you are God. Don't judge your brother or sister, Paul tells us. And don't despise them because they don't think and act just like you. You're not the judge. God is. If you're here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you are not yet a Christian, I want to pause for a moment and address you specifically. Even though this passage does not directly address you, it addresses judgmental Christians. And you're you're like, yeah, I know. I know about judgmental Christians. It's addressing judgmental Christians, telling them that they're not to judge one another because they're not God. But this point that God is the judge, is a really important point for everyone who is here this morning. Verse 10 says, we will all one day stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let me ask you a question. Are you ready for that day? Are you right with God? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Master? Have you placed your faith in Him? He died on the cross to pay the price of the sins of His people. It's only through His death for our sins that we can be forgiven and have a right standing with God. There's no other way. There's no other way. It's through faith in Him that you're declared righteous, not guilty, And it's only through Him that we can have confidence that we will stand in the judgment on the last day. This is a first level issue. Let me assure you, your belief on this issue determines whether you belong to God or whether you do not. And so I want to call you to believe in it. More specifically, I want to call you to believe And Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved from the coming judgment of God. Let's look now at the final point. Honor the Lord because you belong to the Lord. I'm closing with this point because I see verses 5 to 9 intentionally at the center of our passage. And in a lot of passages in the Bible, what's at the center is actually where the author is driving. And I think that's what's going on here. Verse 5 says, One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul is introducing a concept here that will develop in the passage next week. It's the concept of conscience. Clearly, These two groups in the Roman church had different beliefs on diet and special days. They had different practices. But here Paul says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, the Christian life is not only a matter of what God clearly says is right and wrong. It's also a matter of conscience. 
And as a general rule, a person should not act against their conscience, and we shouldn't encourage people to do so. We'll see the reasons why next week. For now, the point I want you to get is that Paul is assuming that everyone in this church, both the weak and the strong, are acting according to their conscience when it comes to the issues of diet and days. They are convinced in their own mind that their behavior is right, and not only that it's right, this is the point I want you to get, they are convinced that what they are doing is honoring to the Lord. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. And Paul says this is the right impulse. This is the way to live, to do everything with a clear conscience and in honor of the Lord. Verses 7 to 9 are simply supporting that this is right. He says, none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. Why is that? Because of what verse 8 says. We are the Lord's. We, if we are Christians, we belong to the Lord. So it only makes sense that everything that we do in our lives should be in honor to the Lord. Christ died and rose again. His death and His resurrection establish Him as Lord. Lord over all things. And so isn't it proper that our lives should be lived not only in worship of Him, but in honor of Him in everything that we do and in everything that we say. If we are Christians, we belong to Him. That's the theological point. The practical and pastoral point that Paul is making is he is saying to both groups, I am assuming, I actually have confidence that the group that's eating and the group that's not eating, both of them are doing that in honor to the Lord. The weak may be wrong in their perspective, but they are abstaining for the right reasons. And you need to respect that. They are doing what they are doing to honor the risen Christ. I see two implications for this point for us very practically this morning. First, when someone believes differently than we believe, we should give them the benefit of the doubt. Assuming we're dealing with third level issues, We should assume that even if they are wrong in their beliefs and in their practice, they are seeking to honor the Lord in their beliefs and in their behavior. So, for example, if you see someone who's allowing their kids to play sports on Sunday and you think that that's wrong and they shouldn't do that, you shouldn't attribute motive to them. You shouldn't assume that they are blatantly disregarding God's word or that they don't care what God's word says about this issue. You should assume that they are seeking to honor the Lord and that what they're doing here is in an attempt to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They may or may not be doing all of that. 
but you should assume that they are. It may be fine that you talk through the issue with them, but not with a preconceived judgment, not in a condescending way, not assuming the worst, but instead assuming they're honoring the Lord and seeking to understand where they're coming from with Christian charity. And you could flip that example. You know, somebody who's not doing that. Don't attribute motive to them either. The second implication is that we should ask ourselves if what we're doing is honoring to the Lord. We shouldn't simply say, I have freedom in Christ to do this. The Bible teaches me that. And so therefore I'm going to do it. We should ask if our actions are being motivated by honoring our risen Savior. Let me put it this way. Could you with a clear conscience give thanks to God while you're doing whatever it is that you're doing? Let me give another example. I know a lot of Christians who believe wholeheartedly that we have freedom in Christ to drink alcohol. I hold that exact same opinion. But as you approach the topic and the practice of alcohol, ask yourself, why do I drink? Is it out of thankfulness for what God has given to us? Or are you simply flaunting your freedom? Also, is your drinking being done in a way that's honoring to the Lord? Last week, Dan showed us very clearly that drunkenness is wrong. And yet, I see a lot of free Christians turning liberty into license on this issue. These are important questions to ask on every third level matter that I've brought up. I'm simply using these as concrete examples to get you thinking about the way that this works. Don't assume that others are legalists. Don't assume that they are lawbreakers. And as for you, don't live as a legalist and don't live as a lawbreaker. Assume others are honoring the Lord and seek to honor the Lord yourself. That's why he saved you. The ultimate goal in the church is that we honor the Lord, and not only as individuals. Later in chapter 15, as Paul's landing the plane on this topic, in verses 5 to 6, he prays that we would live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, he says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God. All of this that we're talking about, all of the purpose of Christ coming to save us, the reason he broke down the walls of hostility between us and made us one is that we would honor and glorify him. So is our life together, Is it doing that? Is our fellowship with one another in the church, is it 
doing that? Are our attitudes towards one another honoring to the Lord? Friends, this is very concretely, very practically what a life of worship looks like. It is what a life of love looks like. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to see one another the way that you see them. It's right to think about all of these issues, to see what your word says. But it's even more important that on these third level issues that we would have unity in the body. And I just pray you would help us to do that. It's so easy for us to assume that that brother or sister is weak and we're strong. I just pray you would dispel those attitudes from our lives that we would honor you in all that we do and all that we say. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.